Let's open our Bibles to Mark 8 that we've already read. Please try to keep your Bible open through the sermon. We'll try to go through much of the chapter, certainly not all of it, but a few of the points. Um, Of all the important things that will happen here in this town this week, there's nothing more important than what happens here this morning in this worship service. God meets with us. We have the opportunity to be fed by him through his word, the opportunity to meet with him and worship him through song and through prayer and through studying his word. Um, Thank you to you brothers who led us in prayer. You served us well. My heart repeated those prayers with you. And thank you to you brothers who led us in singing. That was wonderful. In this chapter, we read what I think is one of the strangest miracles in the Bible. Over the years, I've been puzzled by what in the world is going on in this strange miracle that we see in verses 22 and following. Let's start with that. I'll read from verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see. I see people, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. What in the world is going on? Jesus miraculously opens his eyes the first time. He can see. Well, that's a world different than what what was going on 30 seconds earlier when he couldn't see. But he doesn't see very well. He looks out and he says, I see people, but they look like, you know, blurry big bushes, trees walking. He's no longer blind, but he certainly doesn't see the details. Then Jesus heals him a second time. His eyes are opened further, and he now sees clearly. Jesus is God. He's all-powerful. He didn't mess up the first time. It's not as if this was a really difficult case, and Jesus had to do it in two stages. Like, he didn't quite have enough power the first time, but giving it two goes, he got it. No. This miracle is done by Jesus in this way for a reason to teach something. This miracle is placed by Mark in this chapter for a reason, in order for us to understand something about the other stories in the chapter. I think the whole chapter is about eyesight. I think there are a few people in the chapter chapter who aren't seeing things clearly. Maybe it's fair to say that the whole chapter is about having the right perspective. I like to watch mixed martial arts, the UFC. These guys are not only strong, but they're extremely talented, and they have a fierce determination. I watched a fight a couple weeks ago where a Polish fighter seriously damages his foot in the first round. It becomes twice as big as a foot should be. He fights two more rounds, and he wins the fight. Uh, I sometimes, watching this, 
like to think that I could stand in the octagon and hold my own with some of these guys for a couple of minutes. Realistically, if I went in there with someone who's 50 or 60 pounds less than me, maybe I could make it a go for a couple minutes. But if I'm put in the octagon with the heavyweight champion, I would lose, and honestly, it would take him probably one punch or one kick. Remember the story of David and Goliath? When the men of Israel come out and they look at Goliath, they recognize the reality that no one of them can beat him. He's bigger, he's stronger, he's a more talented fighter than any of them. If one man from Israel walks out from the Israeli lines and goes out there to fight Goliath, that battle is going to be short. A few thousand men all have that perspective. And then David shows up, and he has a different perspective. He sees Goliath. He hears that Goliath is mocking God and God's chosen people. And David sees Goliath as small when compared to a holy God, a God who is jealous for his own name and his own glory. Although David is not a big man, we know that Saul's armor was much too big for him physically. David knows that God can use even a small man to conquer Goliath. David has eyes to see what no one else saw. David has a perspective that no one else had. He was the one that looked at this situation correctly. May God do that with us. May he open our eyes so that we see this world as we should, that we have this correct perspective. I'm going to propose that there are four eyesight problems in the chapter, and we're going to go through those four eyesight problems. The first one is the first story in the chapter. Jesus and his disciples are in a desolate place. There's obviously no grocery store. They don't have the provisions. Maybe they should have. There's a few thousand people who've been following Jesus for a couple days, and they need to be fed. Humanly speaking, there's no obvious solution to this problem. Yet, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, in verse 2, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. The disciples look at each other. And they have no idea how they're to respond. We read their answer in verse 4. How? How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? All they can see is their own limitations. All they can see is their own inability to solve this problem. Is that good or bad? Should we as men and women see our own limitations, our own inabilities? That's good. It's good for us to see our own limitations. A young man is about to propose to his girlfriend. It's best that he realize how great the responsibility is of leading a wife and leading a family. It's best that he go into this new situation fully aware that in his own strength, he's incapable of being the husband and the father that this future wife and future children need. It's better that he feel that he need help than that he go into this feeling, this is no big deal. 
I'm a determined young man. I think I've got this. It's good for a child to feel his limitations, that he's incapable of being perfectly obedient to his or her parents. Should a wife or a mother feel, I can do this. I'll never again lose my temper, never again lose my cool on my husband or my children. For the next 30 years, I've got this. Grit my teeth, try harder, I can do this. It's right for us to realize our own limitations. There is no perfect husband, no perfect wife, no perfect child. In our own strength, we all fall short of the mark. There are none of us who have enough good words or arguments to convince our neighbors, co-workers, and friends to become Christians. There's no pastor talented enough that because of his ability, he'll feed the congregation. Many times over the years, as church planters in Poland, Sarah and I came to the point where we see no clear solution to the problem that we're in. And then the voices in your head start saying, you're not qualified to be doing this. You are not the guy for this job. You're in way over your head. Should we feel our inabilities, like the disciples who look at 4,000 people and feel we can't feed these 4,000 people? Yes, we should feel our inabilities. But we should feel a second thing at the same time. Number one, I'm incapable. And number two, I'm not alone. Number one, I'm incapable. Number two, I'm not alone. In the passage that we read, Jesus is standing right there in front of them. And he does miracles. Jesus can do the impossible. And he's using his words to, to tell the disciples, I love these 4,000 people. I want to do something to help these 4,000 people. And standing in his presence, the disciples can only focus on themselves and their own inabilities and their own lack of resources to fix the situation. Child of God, God is just as close to you right now as Jesus was to those disciples. He loves you and he's ready to help. Child, you may be unable to obey your parents, but God is ready and willing to help you. Turn your eyes off of yourself. Put them on him and ask him for help. Husband, you're unable to be everything you should be for your wife and children, but God is near. He's all-powerful. Turn your eyes off of yourself and look on him. Wife, you have limitations. You can't be the perfect wife. You won't be the perfect mother. But we can't let our inabilities paralyze us. Look to Jesus and trust that he will empower you to do the impossible. Christian, you don't have the perfect words in order to cause your coworkers and neighbors and friends to come to Christ. But trust that God can give you good words and speak. We must not focus on ourselves and our inabilities, but we must turn our focus on Christ. The first eyesight problem in the chapter is a focus on self, our inabilities, our weaknesses. We are weak, but that is exactly the sort of people 
that God has always chosen to use. A few verses later, Jesus confronts a second problem, starting at verse 11. He's not pleased with those who are looking for signs and wonders. This is also a sort of eyesight problem. I'll read from verse 11 to 13. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And look at those horrible words. And he left them. God, in his great love to mankind, generously has revealed himself to us through nature, through the Holy Scriptures, through Jesus Christ. The correct response to the three ways that God has revealed himself to us is to take advantage of this revelation, use it, study it, get to know the God of the universe. God wants you to know him. And he has the right to choose the ways in which he's going to reveal himself to, 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 to us. We have the story of Gideon in the Old Testament. Remember that? God gives Gideon some commands. And instead of Gideon directly obeying those commands, he asks God for a few miracles. And God is extremely long-suffering and generous to Gideon. And he does signs for Gideon. But we need to recognize that this, in Gideon's behavior, asking for signs and wonders, is not an example of great faith, but is an example of lack of faith. In Mark 8, when people ask for a sign, similar to what Gideon did, Jesus is not pleased. God has chosen to reveal many things to us, and he's chosen to not reveal things to us. He's said, this is enough. This is sufficient. Listen to this verse. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And then this, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. There are lots of things we would like to know that aren't in the Bible. God has said, this is sufficient for the child of God to be mature, complete, equipped for every good work. Made up an illustration. Husband, let's say that your wife has pre prepared dinner for you. You come home from work and it's all on the table. Meat, potatoes, salad, dessert, drinks. You come into the kitchen and you start rummaging through the cabinets, and pantry, and fridge until you find a bag of gummy bears and you sit down and begin to eat them. Your wife's not going to be pleased with this behavior. Similarly, God, in his great love to us, has prepared a way for us to know him. He desires that we know him. He's generously revealed himself to us. The primary way that he has revealed himself to mankind is through his written word. Let us open our eyes and see this gift for what it is. 
instead of a people who have wandering eyes, looking around for signs and dreams and miracles to lead us through life. Let's open his book and turn our eyes down to the page and focus on it. Let's move to another situation, starting in verse 14. This is a fun one. I'll read verses 14 through 18. Now they'd forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Jesus, aware of this, says to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? These are harsh words. Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? So try to imagine the situation. The disciples have made a mistake. They haven't brought bread for their journey. While on the journey, Jesus begins to teach them. It's unrelated to the bread. Jesus begins to teach them. And he's talking about the leaven of the Pharisees. I think he wants to draw attention to something like hypocrisy or something like legalism. He says, watch out for legalism, trying to earn God's favor through our works. That's extremely dangerous. And leaven is something that spreads through the whole dough. It grows, it spreads. And so Jesus uses it as an illustration for how dangerous legalism can be, how dangerous hypocrisy can be to which the disciples draw strange conclusions. They say, ah, we know what he's talking about. He's pointing out the fact that we messed up and we didn't bring enough bread. To which Jesus says, are you blind? Let's try to work through what's going on. Jesus is trying to teach them. He's not worried about the fact that they didn't bring enough bread. He is completely capable of feeding this little band with the one whole loaf that they do have. He had just fed thousands of people with far less. He's actually trying to teach them something. But the disciples are so focused on the bread situation that they're making up all kinds of conclusions about his teaching. He says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And they say, we've got you. We forgot to bring bread. And Jesus says, no. So, the disciples have actually made a mistake. I travel often, almost every weekend, I'm on the road, and I'm not in the habit of packing meals for myself. We live in such a convenient world that I'm counting on the fact that almost any exit along the highway, I can pull off and find a place to eat. At, at the bare minimum, I can find a, a gas station that has a little convenience store with shelves and shelves of food. However, the disciples lived in a different world, and it was much more difficult for them to find a store or a restaurant. In those times, it was absolutely a wise practice to always travel with some water and some food. So they have legitimately made a mistake. They should have brought bread and water. They're in a bit of trouble of their own making. And I want to point out the difference between the trouble they had at the very beginning of the chapter and the trouble that they had now. 
The trouble at the beginning of the chapter, when they were trying to think, how can we feed 4,000 people? That's trouble they were in, not of their own making. Now they're in trouble, that's a little bit different. It's trouble of, they're, they're partially at fault. This is trouble of their own making. These are the two basic categories of trouble that we all experience in life. Trouble just because we're fallen humans living in a sin-cursed world, and secondly, trouble that we brought on ourselves. Two types of trouble. Jesus offers the same solution to both. The solution is stop focusing on yourself and turn your eyes to Jesus. When in trouble, not of your own doing, trust in Jesus. When in trouble of your own doing, confess your fault and trust in Jesus. Let's hear Jesus' words from verse 18 and following. Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, seven. And he said, do you not yet understand? What were they to understand? That they can trust in Jesus to meet their needs. That they should run to Jesus with their troubles. Not focus on themselves, not focus on the trouble they've gotten themselves into. At the end of verse 18, in the beginning of verse 19, he says, Do you not remember, and he says, when I broke the five loaves? Jesus right here reminds them about himself. And we see this all through the Gospels. Jesus was the sort of teacher that taught about himself. He constantly is bringing people's attention to his own work. No other prophet in the Bible is like this. All through the Old Testament, there were prophets. God sent people to work in Israel. And they were all saying, remember your God who's giving you these promises. Look forward to the coming Messiah. Jesus talks about himself. He says, remember what I just did in these last days. I've been a pastor for a little more than 20 years now, and through many years of counseling, I've experienced people who are willing to run to Jesus for the first sort of problem and not very willing to run to Jesus for that second sort of problem, that they're in trouble that they've caused themselves. They say, yes, I know we should run to Jesus with our trouble, but I'm in this situation because of my own foolishness or because of my own sin. Listen to me carefully. It's possible to focus too greatly on our sin. That's probably not the greatest problem in our modern world. There are many people around us in our culture who flaunt their sins, who claim to be proud of their sins, who claim that they have no remorse for their sin. It is good and healthy for us to see our sin for what it is. Horrible, filthy, repulsive rebellion against our Creator God. However, there is a wrong way of focusing on our sin so that it keeps us from God. 
Imagine a person who sinned this Friday or Saturday night, and so they decide to not go to church to worship God on Sunday morning. Suppose a person can't sing from their heart on Sunday morning because they're aware of their sin in the week. Or a person who avoids their Christian friends because they're aware of how they sinned. A person who doesn't take part in the Lord's Supper because they failed again this week. Our sins should not keep us from Jesus. Let me read you this story from Luke 7. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love more? And Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said, You've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I've entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, your, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Jesus loved this sinful woman. And he rejoiced that she drew near to him. When everyone felt like the appropriate thing to do would be for a sinner to stay far from Jesus. Jesus is teaching us that it's right for sinful people to come to Jesus. Brother and sister, God is ready to forgive our sins. He's ready to work not only in your life, but he's willing to use you to build his kingdom. All the servants of God that he's ever used to build his kingdom are in that category of sinner. It's good for us to see our sin, but it's not good for us to focus on our sin. See your sins for what they are, but let us keep our focus on Jesus. There's a well-known quote. I should know who said it, but I don't who says, look to Jesus ten times for every one time you look at your sin. Jesus rebuked the disciples in this instance because they were so focused on their own failure that he says they can't see straight. They're so focused on a mistake that they made that Jesus asks them, 
Do you have eyes in your head, but you're blind? The next eyesight-related story in the chapter is a wonderful one, an extremely positive one. Peter sees clearly. God opens his eyes, and Peter sees Jesus for who he is. We'll read from verse 27 to 29. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others say one of the prophets. And he asks them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. God has done this. He's opened Peter's eyes so that Peter sees Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the one promised all the way back to Adam and Eve, the one who would one day be born and would crush the serpent's head. Adam and Eve had perfect fellowship with God. They lived in a sort of garden temple where they enjoyed God's presence. However, they rebelled against God, chose to go their own way, And the God of the universe, who is a just God, casts them out of the garden, away from his presence. A horrible thing. And at that same moment of doing this horrible thing, he gives a promise. That one day, a descendant of Eve would be born who would reverse all of this, who would conquer the snake. One day, a hero would be born who would bring mankind back to God back to paradise, back to fellowship with the Father. All of the prophets looked forward to this coming anointed one of God. And now Peter's eyes are opened. He sees Jesus of Nazareth, son of a carpenter. He's the promised one. At the same time, does Peter see clearly? Let's read from the next verses, from verse 31 on. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Isn't it shocking that verse 32 is in the Bible? Peter takes Jesus aside. He says, ah, could you come here for a second? In general, you're doing pretty good. Bringing us back to God, ushering in the kingdom. You're doing pretty good with all of that. But you're messing up some of the details. God wouldn't have his beloved son suffer. Who could be so blind that they could think it's their place to rebuke the Messiah? And this is Peter, the same guy who one verse prior had seen clearly. This mistake that Peter makes comes so naturally to us. How could a good God who loves his son more than anything, literally. Jesus is 
the beloved son in whom the father is well pleased. No one is his equal. None other are more beloved than him. How could it be God's plan for his beloved to suffer? To suffer horribly, to be rejected and die. This is difficult for us to understand, but it's true. Jesus suffered and died according to the will of God. And Peter says, no, that can't be right. God is a God of love. It can't be his plan for his beloved to suffer. And Peter tries to explain to Jesus how God's will works. He explains to Jesus that God's will is for his beloved to not suffer. Well, Peter is wrong. But this is a difficult subject. Our minds are limited. Our perspective is limited. Maybe on certain days in theology class, when we're thinking through things, there are moments when it's kind of easy for us to say, oh yes, God uses suffering in his children's lives for their good and for his glory. But then, when we ourselves, or those very close to us, go through dark valleys of suffering, many are tempted to repeat the mistake of Peter. We're tempted to start doing some sort of theological gymnastics to show that somehow suffering is outside of the will of God. Let's take just a minute this morning to remember the beloved Son of God hanging on the cross. Look at the nails going through his wrists. Look at the crown of thorns pushed into his brow. Look at the hole in his side. This is both the worst moment in the history of the world and the best moment in the history of the world. The only perfect man, the only one who didn't deserve any suffering, is suffering. But this suffering will not be wasted. It's not senseless suffering. Oh, this is good news for us. Just as Jesus suffered according to the will of God, a suffering that God used for much good, suffering that brought many sinners to himself, this was used for the glory of God's own name. Dear brother and sister, if you're suffering today, know this, God will not waste the suffering of his beloved children. Your suffering is not senseless. It's part of his plan. We don't understand all the details of his plan. We don't know exactly how he's going to use suffering. But let us not be as blind as Peter. Let us open our eyes to the truth that God will bring all of his children through suffering to glory. Not directly to glory but through suffering to glory. Listen to Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. One more time. It's been granted to you. So a gift has been given to you. For the sake of Christ, so not because you deserve it, but for Christ it's been given to you. You should not only believe in him, 
but also suffer for his sake. You've been given a gift. It's actually not one gift, it's two. The blind man's eyes were opened, but only so that he could see people like trees walking. Isn't Peter a lot like that? He saw that Jesus would be victorious, but he was blind to see that this road to victory led through suffering, rejection, and even death. Peter thought that God's plan would be kind of a straight line to victory with not many curves or valleys in the road. Obviously, Peter is still quite blind. God's plan for Jesus' victory seems like foolishness to Peter. Let us not make that same mistake. Christian, God's plan for you probably has more curves and valleys in that road than you would prefer. But Jesus' suffering and death was not the end of his story. Three days later, God raised him from the dead. On the last day, Jesus will sit high on his throne and judge all men. And for all of eternity, he will live and rejoice with his people who he purchased with his blood. And your story is similar. It's not a straight line to eternal rest. But if you're a child of God, it does end in eternal rest. So through the valleys, through the rejection, through the suffering and death, let us go through all of that with our eyes opened. Let us look to the glory that awaits us and remember the words of God that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the joy that is to be revealed to us. Let us go through this world trusting our Father. Just as he used suffering in the life of his beloved Son, so he will not waste one ounce of your suffering, but it will serve his purposes. In this world we will have trouble, some of it of our own doing. Let us confess our faults and run to Jesus. He alone can save since we can't fix ourselves, let us be quick to go to the one who can fix us. His methods of bringing us home are probably not the ones that we would choose. But he's worthy of our trust. May our eyes be focused on him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you know us, you know what kind of people we are. We're so quick to get our eyes focused one more time on ourselves, on our inabilities, on our sins. Please, God, we pray that you would help us once again to turn our eyes today away from ourselves and to you, that we would live this one life that we have not focused inwardly, on ourselves and how we can live for our own comfort and our, our own fulfillment. Help us to look to you. Help our eyes to be focused on the name of Jesus Christ. How can we live our life so that your name is more known in this world, so that your glory spreads? Help us today to see your glory more clearly than we have and to live for you. We ask these things in Christ's name.
Amen.